Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Interview, where we meet the brightest minds and talk about the Ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, the editor of Prospect magazine, and today we're talking to Jill Rutter and Anand Menon about the question that's creeping up on Westminster as we inch towards the year's end when our departure from Europe finally gets real. Namely, who killed soft Brexit? Two of Britain's leading think tankers from the UK in a changing Europe Jill and Anand have written a piece under that name in our new magazine and, as we'll be hearing, have annoyed just about everyone in the process. But the mystery they are drawn to is compelling. When the nation went to the polls in 2016, the result was split down the middle. So how come the Brexit that's now coming doesn't look like the sort of middle-of-the-road compromise we might have expected with lots of continuing connections with Europe but instead a hard departure where we're well and truly outside the club. Welcome to you both. Um, Anna, I'm going to start with you. At the outset, we do need to be clear, we're recording this on the 25th of November, while the country still waits to hear whether there's to be a Brexit deal. But in a way, your first point is that you don't much mind, because whether or not there is a deal in the coming days... It's a hard Brexit either way. Well, I wouldn't say that exactly, I have to say. I think there is a big difference between having a deal and not having a deal. The point I think we we, we stress in the article is if you look at the gamut of possible outcomes from this involving a deal, this is very, very much towards the hard end of that spectrum and miles away from where I think many people expected that we'd end up back in June 2016. And so we did used to talk about, as it alludes to in the article, Switzerland, Norway, for the real aficionados, I think Liechtenstein, these places that are half in, half out. And you're saying we're none of those now. Yeah, I mean, if you think back to that summer, I mean, there was, there was a sort of adjective war fought over the summer of 2016, wasn't there, between, you know, chaotic Brexit, managed Brexit, uh, hard Brexit, soft Brexit. We had red, white and blue Brexit and famously someone coined dogs Brexit. Uh, and there were all these different models out there. And I think at that point, the notion that we'd end up so completely separate from the EU's regulatory order was a was a sort of a, a, a niche belief, I think. 
And specifically, um, you know, let's imagine for the sake of argument that we do get a deal and there's not going to suddenly be tariffs on goods, which I think is the main thing they're haggling about at the moment. So if we get that deal, it's still a hard Brexit because... It's a hard Brexit because uh, we, we won't we won't be within the EU's regulatory orbit, which means that despite the fact there aren't tariffs, we'll be outside the customs union as well. So there will be customs forms to fill in. There'll be rules of origin requirements. Uh, there will be the need to comply with EU standards and get certified as as uh complying with those EU standards inside the EU, there will be lots and lots of additional costs for those who trade between the UK and the European Union. Okay, so um, soft Brexit is dead. Jill, you were the one who came up with this whodunit format, wasn't it, with the, uh, the different people who might be charged with placing the knife into soft Brexit, as it were. And we keep the focus not on the people who are proud culprits, the Jacob Rees Smogs of this world who always wanted a hard Brexit, but on everyone else. Yeah, I mean, the question is, you can either believe that the uh, hard Brexiters, the European research group, so people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, Steve Baker, possibly Boris Johnson, things like that, were absolutely brilliant and, you know, and just swept all before by their compelling arguments and the fact that they were the smartest political, op political operatives of all time. That's possible, and actually quite a lot of the reaction Anna and I have said, why haven't you blamed it? It's all down to the ELG. Why haven't you just blamed them? But part of what we were saying is actually, if you look at that parliament, look at the parliament that Theresa May inherited, in uh, both in the parliament in 2016 at the referendum and then the 2017 to 2019 parliament, absolutely no evidence there was a majority for that sort of Brexit in that parliament. Uh, you would say a lot of people were former Remainers, people formerly known as Remainers. Some stuck with Remain, others wanted other sorts of Brexit. But I don't think there were probably more than 80 on the Conservative benches who sort of signed up to the ERG vision and maybe a few on the Labour benches, the sort of handful, Frank Field, Kate Hoey, one or two of those sorts of people. Um, but very few in a parliament of 650. Mm. You then, uh, so you've got that question of, you know, how did we end up there? That's true. You also then look at where the public is. The U University College London, we mentioned this in the article, did a sort of citizens assembly deliberation thing and put various trade-offs to people. And it's pretty clear if you ask the public and the public that was selected to represent the you know, leave, remain, divide, the infamous or famous 5248, they basically ended up somewhere with a sort of compromisey sort of relationship. And I think that's probably what the EU assumed the UK would go for as a logical outcome of a finely balanced vote. They had a sort of halfway house, remember that Barnier staircase, they had that halfway house that had been their solution when Norway said no to EU membership, would take you out of the common agricultural policy, the common fisheries policy, in case of Norway also out of the customs union or not joining the customs union, but it was a very close integration. Uh, you'd accept some rule taking from Brussels in return for very privileged economic access. You probably thought that was where the UK ended up. And there were lots of people you thought looking around who probably in that parliament would have made that choice. But that's not where we've ended up. And that's why we okay. thought it was quite interesting to ask who facilitated that massive victory by that very distinctive view of what Brexit meant.
So we've got the eight of the MPs that don't just want Brexit, but want a really hard Brexit. They've prevailed, even though everyone else claimed to want something else. So let's just take some of the villains of the piece, as it were, which is just about everyone, one at a time. First of all, the Prime Minister, Theresa May. Where does her culpability lie for the death of this soft or middle-way Brexit that she sort of seemed to want? Well, I mean, there are several things you can you can point to. I mean, one might be Theresa May herself, that is to say, whether or not the simple fact of having someone who back remain as the first sort of new prime minister post-referendum uh, was a recipe for a harder Brexit, because, of course, she spent much of her first year plus in office making nice to the ERG to prove her Brexity credentials. So she was hamstrung from the start in that way. And then there were a series of decisions made that, in retrospect, weren't all that sensible, triggering Article 50 without having a clear plan, not talking enough across Parliament to try and ascertain whether there were solutions to the Brexit dilemma that would bring Parliament and indeed the country with her. Uh, her style didn't help. Uh, it's hard to avoid a sense that in some of the posturing she did, some of the signalling she did, like setting up the uh, Department for International Trade, she hadn't fully understood the implications of those. If you have a Department for International Trade, you're not in the customs union. Uh, there are, there's also some evidence that suggests that when she made that speech at the party conference on the Sunday in the October, and even when she made the Lancaster House speech, that there was a lack of awareness that saying we're not having freedom of movement, we're not being under the European Court of Justice, that that would mean quite a hard break with the European Union in terms of our ability to trade with them. So quite a few people have said to us, well, actually, you know, wasn't the die absolutely cast in that party conference speech and then followed up in the Lancaster House speech, the different ways of reading Lancaster House, which is in January 2017, before even Article 50 was triggered. But what was really interesting about Theresa May and why you sort of could say, you know, is she not maybe the sole culprit for this? What's quite interesting about Theresa May, she definitely went on a bit of a journey. And if you look at where she got to by the time of the Chequers deal and her version of the Northern Ireland backstop, she was definitely on a route to a different sort of Brexit to the one that we're ending up. So you could say Theresa won the Theresa of the party conference to say, well, she was prime minister. She, she just bought the ERG and said, this is where I'm going to take my government. But she definitely moved a bit because she made a choice on uh, manufacturing that actually the UK wouldn't want to diverge that much on good standards and might as well be a bit of a rule taker in, uh, you know, in theory as well as in practice and therefore she was prepared to sign up to that. But also because with her EU-UK customs arrangement, she was bending over backwards to find a way within the future relationship to avoid a hard border and rejected out of hand the sort of thing that Boris Johnson has gone for a hard border in the Irish Sea to enable Great Britain at least to have maximum regulatory freedom. So that's why we don't just say the buck stops completely with Theresa. There are other people who say, well, it wasn't Theresa, she was basically just Nick Timothy's sock puppet. Uh, but we don't name Nick Timothy because I hold very much, you know, uh, Boris Johnson, I name you here as well, that basically prime ministers have to take responsibility for taking the advice of their advisors. Advisors yeah. only advise, and therefore we shouldn't let politicians off the hook by pretending they're the complete puppets of their uh, 
their advisors. I mean, maybe uh, Theresa May thought she could kind of posture a bit, win an election, and then, like, with a majority of 150, force a compromise. But, of course, that wasn't to be. Instead, we got this election in June 2017 where Jeremy Corbyn kind of came close to fighting Theresa May to a draw of sorts against all expectations. And so he was suddenly in this position of enormous power. And he was very much a soft Brexit kind of man, wasn't he? A guy who said in the referendum, Europe's seven out of 10, really didn't want a second referendum or any any possibility of messing around with the original result. But Anand, he ended up being someone else who, uh, like absolutely played his part in the downfall of the middle way here. Yeah, I have to say, I'm not wholly convinced he was a soft Brexit sort of chap because my sense <laughs> about Corbyn was always that he was a Benite when it came to the European Union. And this was the fundamental problem with soft Brexit, isn't it? Is that if you believe in control, you're either in and you've got to vote or you're completely separate from the regulatory system because otherwise you're a rule taker. And my sense of Corbyn was that was where he was was he didn't was he had a sovereigntist or a sort of democracy related objection to the idea of being a rule taker but he was pushed uh, he was pushed by many people including Keir Starmer who we might well get on to and i think pushed into a very uncomfortable situation where he softened his position on brexit whilst simultaneously sort of hunting unicorns so this idea of you know we'll be in a customs we'll be in a customs union and uh, we'll have a say well, no, you won't have a say because the EU treaties are quite clear. If you're not a member state, you don't get to sit around the table making decisions with us. Uh, we will manage to be in the single market but not have freedom of movement. So he he, he squirmed and squirmed and squirmed, Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, and ultimately, I suppose the biggest criticism of him, him is he didn't lead. He didn't stake out a position and try and bring people with him in that into that position. Rather, he found himself being dragged, kicking and screaming, towards ultimately support for a second referendum, but made it clear all the way through that he was profoundly uncomfortable with wherever he'd ended up. <laughs> I mean, I've got a slightly different take on, on Jeremy Corbyn, which is I honestly don't think he cares about the issue of Europe, unlike Tony Benn, who you mentioned. Um, there was someone did, uh, David Runciman did a review of all the references of Jeremy Corbyn in Tony Benn's diaries. Um, and most of them say Jeremy Corbyn was also there in all these left-wing meetings. And the only time Jeremy Corbyn ever disagreed with him was about whether or not he could be bothered to have a referendum on the Maastricht Treaty. And Jeremy thought, was a bit of a side issue, let's get back to talking about Venezuela or whatever. And um, I, 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 my reading of it is that in the end, he was more interested in bringing the Conservatives down than anything in any direction on Europe. What do you think, Jill? No, I think, I think it's interesting. I mean, but then I think he created a space in which other people in Labour could play, but didn't play towards what you might expect, a Labour party that accepted the result of the referendum. I think that was one of the big problems for, for Labour, was with it, were they prepared to accept the results? And Labour was very spit all over the place. And we saw the sort of ultimate move of Labour towards a second referendum and that commitment of the party conference in, uh, in 2019 towards that. And that's why... I think, you know, Keir Starmer was quite an influential figure. Keir Starmer didn't sort of uh, left it to people like Stephen Kinnock, you could say, to make the running on the sort of Norway options and reach out cross party uh, with his sort of, you know, liaising with people like Nick Bowles. So uh, Labour was undoubtedly very split between the people who felt you had to, you know, honour the vote whatever, sort of Caroline Flintson, people like that, towards people who absolutely refused to 
refuse to contemplate that because actually a lot of the people's vote were those sort of ex-Labour Remainers still fighting passionately to reverse. And that meant that Labour lost what you might have seen as an opportunity to articulate a very different vision of Brexit. You could build it up from some of the provisions they want. Um, but actually, Theresa May's withdrawal agreement and the sort of baubles they would have hung on a Theresa May withdrawal agreement bill to get it through, with a big caveat of could they have agreed that, uh, could they have uh, actually had any guarantees that uh, Parliament would see that through afterwards into the final agreement? We've seen quite a lot of rowing back. But that could have offered everything you might have said a Labour accepting the results of the referendum, which is what it said it would do in the 2017 manifesto, would want. They could have got pretty close to all those guarantees. The government was, you know, offering them guarantees right, left and centre. Ditto the DUP. DUP, of course, uh, had also backed Brexit in the referendum, probably as a piece of identity politics, thinking their bluff would never be called because DUP were always extraordinarily quiet on how you would actually make Brexit work in the island of Ireland. Uh, I did a thing early on in the, once Article 50 was there, on Newsnight with Ian Paisley Jr., which was supposed to be, how would you make the, uh, make the Northern Ireland border work? And it has to be said, it's a complete car crash because uh, Andrew Lillico and I were there to critique the proposals. His proposal was we needed confidence as a nation and it was quite difficult to actually uh, say anything very much about that. Um, so I think you know, they're the other people who the May government were leaning, bending over backwards to try and accommodate, uh, accommodate the interests of the DUP, but it was never good enough for the DUP. Uh, and they kept on saying, no, 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 and have ended up with something that they dislike much more intensely, which is why the DUP are also on our list. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. So we know that the, the DUP have historically always, in every flavour and every circumstance, been you know the party that likes to say no. We also know, as you've alluded to, that there was a chunk of people who were kind of quite proudly out there saying we're going to go for a middle way. 
Uh, and then when it came to it, the kind of party politics came in and no Labour people could quite bring themselves to back Theresa May and Tory people couldn't quite bring themselves to reach out. But then, um, you know, possibly slightly painfully for a number of prospect um, readers and writers, there's also the ultimately um, self-defeatingly sectarian nature of the Remain insurgency, isn't there, um, Anand? Which, you know, there's lots of people we could make the face of this. In the piece, it kind of goes towards Joe Swinson, who was the most militant Remainer in the November 2019 um, election, who was saying, we're not going to have a referendum anymore once Labour did, we're going to revoke instead. Yeah, I mean, Joe Swinson took a massive gamble and lost, uh, is the simplest way of putting it. She thought that she could stake out her ground with the whole bollocks of Brexit thing, the whole revoke uh, priority rather than going via a second referendum. And ultimately that electoral gamble failed. But she's not alone on that. I mean, one of the interesting things is, for many on the second referendum side of the argument, the path to that referendum was via a scorched earth policy of all other options. Mm. And one of the interesting things about those few years is the degree to which people in support of a second referendum were as guilty as those in the ERG of absolutely trashing the idea that there could be anything conceivable that was called a soft Brexit. Brexit was gonna be hard, it was gonna be a nightmare, or we were gonna stay in because we were gonna have a second referendum. Uh, so I don't think it's wholly down to Joe Swinson, though ultimately when you come to the time just before the October 2019 election, she was absolutely key in deciding to back calls for an election, which ultimately, and you've got to judge politicians ultimately by results, was a fantastic misstep. So that, that might be enough on the, on the different culprits, but if we try and get, Jill, the moment of the crime, do you think it might be those indicative votes uh, in, in, in the spring, late spring, I think, of last year, when um, Parliament got its chance to come up with, you know, any different flavour of Brexit it wanted and agreed to back absolutely nothing. It could be that uh, as a sort of thing, because Parliament was quite good at stopping things, but Parliament was very bad at saying we've stopped this, but go this way instead. So, uh, so we discovered the limitations of the powers of Parliament. But that's why I think one of the one of the things we put on our list um, is inadequate institutions, if you like that sort of, you know, is it a failure of institutions that are arguably the way in which we do politics in the UK and as the political science professor. So I'll spout out and you can tell me why all this is uh, all this is sort of <laughs> silly and wrong. But one of the things I think I did panels in Europe, one of the people there was saying, well, actually, we, why is there not a sort of discussion between parties? Why isn't it a sort of compromise? And we, you know, we did see some of these groups springing up and ultimately people were taking the sort of decision almost individually as did they, you know, did they play black, which in the sort of roulette wheel that the game of Brexit became, it's another tortured metaphor, you know, and bet the house on their side of the argument winning or were they prepared to do a sort of, you know, mixy strategy and come out with something where they, you know, wouldn't get totally, they wouldn't take the house, but they would get, um, you know, get some dividends at the centre, even though it was a much lower payback. I think I might have uh, displayed my lack of knowledge of casinos there. But, but I think <laughs> one of the questions is, you know, the adversarial and binary nature of the House of Commons makes it very bad at being a forum for brokering solutions and compromises 
which uh, systems which are more useful and more used to and have bigger expectations of cross-party compromises and deals, um, you know, find it easier. But there is the argument, uh, and we do highlight this, that actually Theresa May had a line which I think she used uh, in Florence that some, a sort of softish Brexit would actually not work for either side. Uh, so there is a really interesting question, was it ever a sustainable equilibrium, even if we, you know, emerging from those people who said, well, actually, it's the solution that none of us think is the first best, were people prepared to accept it as a second best, and would they ever move to their second best solution? What we had was people sticking out for their first best preferences. One side appears to have got that, uh, though in the longer term, you know, will they get their rewards for it? The other side, lost, lost, lost. Uh, would they actually have been happier with that second best solution? Uh, we don't know, um, but that is where we ended up. And I think it is quite interesting that, as you say, the indicative votes were a moment which shows the impotence of parliament as being able to produce some sort of consensus solution. I can see the sort of self-hating kind of Brit element here, you know, the British press, the British people were all kind of set up to think that, like, you know, we should be able to tell other people what to do and a soft Brexit that ultimately means um, us complying with a load of rules when we're not in the meetings where those rules are written is going to be quite a difficult sell for our political, our media culture. But, Alan, you also say in the piece that there could be a problem with something um, culturally in the European, the Brussels side of things. Maybe the European institutions were a bit defensive and played their own part in soft Brexit's downfall. Yeah, they were, they were very defensive. I mean, from the start, remember, the thinking on the EU side was, we've got to show that leaving is a bad idea. And there was implicit in this a sort of fear of emulation that, you know, if this doesn't end badly for the Brits, other people are going to try and do it. And as it turns out, exactly the opposite has happened. All the polling suggests that actually people are more pro-European integration within the EU now than they were at the time of the referendum. And populist forces that used to talk about leaving the EU no longer do. You see that in Italy, you see that with Marine Le Pen in France as well. Uh, so I think the EU were too defensive. I think both sides, in a sense, lack to that ability to step back from the immediate, the immediacy of the negotiations and think, look, like it or not, the UK and the European Union are going to have to collaborate together on a range of issues, not just on trade, but on politics, on counterterrorism, on foreign policy, on defence. We need to chart a course to an endpoint where we can continue to collaborate as closely as possible. How do we do this? And of course, neither side did that. Both sides hunkered down and said, this far and no further, these are our red lines. And I think the big picture was was lost from you. So I do think that's uh, a pretty fair criticism, yeah. Um, like, uh, interested from both of you now, not in where we go in the next few days, because, you know, the, the days will overtake us, but where we might be in a few years' time. There's a piece by um, a, a former diplomat um, uh, official on the, on the Prospect website just now by David Hennig about... Um, where we might go in a year or two's time. And he's basically saying EU-Britain talks are going to go on forever because so much isn't covered by these talks, you know, that we will be talking about all the different flavours of cooperation that Annan's talking about there. Um, and we'll be haggling over them, trying to bring things back in and make concessions over here in return for movement over there, um, you know, well beyond the end of this transition. Jill, do you see that? Do you see... 
Brexit talks, which may or may not be called Brexit talks, any longer now just going on for the rest of our lives? I think it slightly depends on whether there are lots and lots of loose ends here. I mean, there are quite a lot of people who think if we get the sort of very thin deal that, uh, that looks in prospect, if there is a deal, and there may, by the time this goes out, there may be a deal done, that actually that's a starting point and we can add lots of things back in. I'm not sure that I see massive incentives for the EU to add much in on trade. Mm. Uh, I know the CBI think, yeah, well, we're not getting much on services now, but the EU will come around on services. But the EU, I think, sees this as quite a big opportunity. You know, if we've given up access to our market for their goods and they think they can actually take a slice of the action on services, I'm not sure why they would actually then say, well, actually, uh, you've given us everything we want, but we'll give you a bit back. That seems to me a bit weird, certainly in the short run. It may be that over time, with a different government, a different mentality, we develop things, you know, whatever. But I think there will have to be a new fora for cooperation as well, because actually, you know, I think 31st of December is probably the point of maximum distance, because that's the point at which we really have all said, okay, line in the sand that's uh, yeah it's very different now it's very different now but over time we have lots of shared threats interests and stuff like that uh, the uk will have to pay attention to what's going on in brussels we'll have to find really effective new ways of influencing eu regulation because that's why i said the Theresa may government came to the view that on a lot of this actually there was a distinction between the theory of regulatory autonomy and the practice of regulatory autonomy. You know, the EU is a big regulatory hegemon, so is the US and so is China. If you look at the ones that actually conceptually the UK is closest to both physically, but also in some senses, probably also um, instinctively, it'll be the EU on a lot of issues. We're much closer to the European social model than the US one and things like that. So what goes on in the EU will continue to matter for us. We're, at the moment, we're running down our newly renamed UK mission in Brussels. That'll probably have to go back up. We're, right. downgrade, we're downgrading the ambassador post. Um, uh, I think, you know, over time, we'll realise that actually, you know, once we get over this, Brussels still matters to us a lot and we'll have to do things. Is what I think okay? the EU is very keen to avoid, though, it's always been keen, the UK at the start, Proposed something that's much more like their agreement with Switzerland, no real jurisdiction over it, and loads of individual treaties. And the EU has always regarded Switzerland as a mistake for Switzerland and one that it didn't want to replicate, replicate with the UK. I think that's why it wasn't on the Barnier staircase, which we're now sort of sitting at the bottom of. But, yeah, okay. So that's the international that's the international politics. But Anna, and a final word on the domestic politics. We know from polling that's come out in the last few days, there's some of it in the in the magazine that you're in as well, about how there's been, you know, a, 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 a slow but sustained, I could put it like that, drift away from support for thinking that Brexit is a good idea at the moment when Brexit's about to get real. Of course, there's a couple of other things going on that we might think are even bigger than Brexit, like a pandemic. How do you see the blame game playing out uh, in British domestic politics? Or do you think there will be a blame game at all, I guess, is the prior question. But if so, how do you see that playing out over the next couple of years? 
I'm not sure the blame game will be as clear cut or as obvious as many Remainers think. That is to say, you know, we've a lot of talk about cliff edges and the like, as if, you know, the day the transition ends, everyone will turn around and go, oh, Christ, what have we done? They're accused. Uh, manufacturers are struggling. I think for, partly because the impact of Brexit will be relatively slow burn and will play out over time which will make it harder to identify that. In, in the minds of voters, identifying a causal link between a decision they took in June 2016 and outcomes they might be seeing in 2023, 2024 is not, a, it's not simple or obvious. And also, I think, because we underestimate at our peril the degree to which the unemployment crisis that we're all expecting in the early part of next year will just simply crowd everything else out. I think for the first six to eight months next year, minimum, that's all we're going to be thinking and talking about, uh, particularly if some of those sort of grimmer forecasts that economists are coming out with a three million plus unemployed proved to be true. Uh, there's not going to be much space to worry about what's happening to our supply chains when it comes to trading with the European Union, because that will be a far more pressing political issue. So I think the blame game, I'm not convinced it's going to uh, appear very soon. The second, the final thing I'd say on this is, I think Labour are missing a trick by not starting to formulate a narrative around the impact of Brexit with a deal. That is to say, they focused all their fire on the fact that if the Prime Minister doesn't get a deal, that will prove that he's incompetent, that his oven-ready deal was nothing of the kind. Whereas I actually think because the impact of Brexit will still be with us and be very real at the time of the next election, they needed to have started now saying, look, even with a deal of the kind he has negotiated, these impacts are going to be significant and serious and start hammering home on that because ultimately we will recover pretty quickly from the pandemic's economic impacts. We will not recover quickly from the impacts of Brexit. Okay, let's leave things on that um, sobering note and thank you both very much for joining us and putting those merciless cases for the prosecution. Thanks for all of you listening to for joining us on the Prospect interview this week. If you've enjoyed our podcast, do leave us a rating and a review. Goodbye, stay safe, and we'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. 
book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.